The following is a continuation of the previous episode. Welcome to the Yellow Balloons Podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. In this episode, Tim continues his look at the ancient churches of renown. John addresses the perspectives and challenges of these churches, which are as applicable today as they were in their time. We'll continue with chapter 2, verses 18 through 29, which focuses on the corrupt church of Thyatira. So the next phase is Thyatira, the corrupt church, your heading might say. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first, nevertheless. I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira as many as do not have this doctrine who have not known the depth of Satan as they say, I will put on you no other burden but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is Thyatira, the corrupt church. But again, you know, there's, there's good things that are in all of these eras. It's not that the whole church is corrupt. It's that there's corruption in the church. And we see during this time period, I'm going to propose as eight, the time period of 800 from when Charlemagne ascended the throne in order to be the holy Roman emperor until 1517, which is when Luther tacked the 95 Thesis to the door. And there's a few things that happened during this time period that might give some, some color to what's going on during this era. One is, in 1384, Wycliffe died. Now, Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. Wycliffe was later dug up, you know, his remains were dug up and he was uh, defiled because he had done this terrible thing of putting the Bible into English. William Tyndall followed on with Wycliffe. So Tyndall, Tyndall wanted to put it in the common language and he was actually uh, murdered as a result of this. He was strangled and then burned at the stake. And what Tyndall wanted to do was to um, that's in 1536. What Tyndall's stated objective was, I want the plowboys in England to know more about the Bible than the, than the bishops do. Which wasn't much of a lift at that point in time because the bishops had just become like a corrupt uh, political office that had kind of the highest bidder got. Which again is the corrupt church. And so these guys are sowing the seed for re- reform during this era, and you can see that now 
the church has become a church where control and power is the key thing. Because we can't let the Bible get into the hands of the people lest the power of the priest be diminished. So we've gone from faithful church, the persecuted church, where these bishops are showing their mettle, to these bishops then being given the authority during this syncretistic era, and now they've become completely corrupt rulers. A personal experience that we had that kind of illustrates this is Mirabel Gardens in Salzburg, Austria. If you've watched The Sound of Music, and they're singing Do Re Mi, Do a Deer, a Female, and they're going through, they're running, one of the scenes when they're doing the Do Re Mi song, they're going through this really beautiful garden, and they're all running along by the fountain and everything. Well, that garden is in a palace in Salzburg. It was built by Wolf Dietrich. Wolf Dietrich was one of the prince bishops that ruled Salzburg, the, the city and the area around it. And that for hundreds of years, Salzburg was rent, ruled by a prince bishop. This is a guy in, in whose office is vested the bishop of the church as well as the prince of the government. Well, Wolf Dietrich built this palace and this garden for his mistress. Because the official Catholic Church, you know, had, you had uh, celibacy of the priests and the bishops. Well, this guy had 11 children by this mistress. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. There is the castle. He built the castle for him. It's, it's, it's not a secret, but everybody's got to pretend that he's the holy man who's celibate while he has this, you know, 11 kids by this, by this mistress. Well, that's corrupt. It's corrupt to say one thing publicly and do something else. It's not even private. It's just like, well, it's like a lot of things going on in our political world, isn't it? It's, some things never change. Say one thing, do another. Now, of course, there's some really good things that happen in this. You've got people like St. Francis of Assisi in, 12, in the 1200s. So it's not, it's not that there's all bad, but the official church during this time period basically just became a control scheme. They took confession, which is a way to get cleansing, and turned it into a cash machine. They took the ordinance of communion and turned it into a weekly necessity that you have to pay money for. It, it, it was a corrupt era. So then the next church, the dead church. This one may surprise you a bit. I'm going to propose it in my model. It's just a model. To the angel in the church of Sardis, right, these things, says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Therefore, remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, I would guess that one of the reasons why you have people that say, no, this really isn't a historical thing, is because of this church and the Laodicean church, both of which kind of hit home. But this dead church, you note, has a reputation that it's alive. 
And I'm going to propose that this era is 1517, the nailing of the 95 Thesis, until 1727, which is a little bit of an arcane number, but that is the, the, the year of the Moravian Revival, which I'll talk about in a little in a minute. The Reformation was taught to me as a time of God, like a golden age of the church. I'm a big Francis Schaeffer fan. And in How Should We Then Live, he pointed out, I think accurately, how many things from the Reformation uh, unwound this superstitious morass that had taken place during this corrupt church era and brought truth back in. And when you bring truth back in, you bring all sorts of wonderful things to the world. And I think that's a totally appropriate thing, which is why I think this era gets its reputation to be alive. But it's dead. Terry and I, years ago, I think it was our 20th anniversary, which is almost 20 years ago now, we went to Austria and Switzerland. I'd always want to go see the Alps. I'd flown over them in my 20s. I always wanted to go down there and see what they looked like. She never wanted to go because when she was a kid, she went to a high school in Germany, and they always had to go skiing in the Alps on vacation. And they, wanted, they wanted to go to the beach. So she was, to her, the Alps meant just bummer, you know, from her standpoint. But then she one day said, you know, I was 16 when I thought that. I, I probably would not look at it that way anymore. Let's go. So we went, and of course, our quick start kind of way, we got a car, and I said, you wanna, which way you want to go? So we, we just kind of had some basic ideas in mind. We just started wondering. And we went to Austria, and we went to Switzerland. And what we learned that I had not known is that Austria exiled like 15,000, 20,000 people during the Reformation. We're not having any Reformation in this country. So it stayed pure Catholic all the way through. And Switzerland was the Reformation. John Calvin was in Geneva. Bern was the capital center, and it's where like the main monastery was. And in the east, you had Zurich, which was Zwingli, who was one of the great reformers. It was the Reformation. So you, there you have them, side by side. And we went through all the churches in Austria, and they were museums for all practical purposes. They were dead as a doornail. I mean, people still came some, but they're mostly just relics. And then we went to Switzerland, and the church there literally was a museum. They charged you money to go in and see it. It wasn't even a functioning church anymore. And it was just dead and sterile. And all the vestiges I saw was dead and sterile. And we got back to the U.S. And I ran into Earl Rodmacher, who was a guy that's had a real positive impact on our church, now deceased. And I said, Dr. Rodmacher, was the Reformation an era with no grace? He said, oh yeah, there was no grace in the Reformation. I was like, how come nobody ever told me that? A little episode that might illustrate this is John Calvin. Calvin, as you might know, was a lawyer who took Augustine's writings and sort of translated them into his era. And so by translating those writings into his era, he came up with his institutes, which he then added to as time went on. And that has become kind of the Protestant foundation for Western theology, Whereas Augustine is kind of the father of Catholic theology. So they basically say the same thing a different way, is, is what it ends up being. And John Calvin had a guy, Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus. So this would be in 1535. Michael Servetus uh, taught some stuff. He was deemed a heretic. And uh, so he happened to be wandering through Geneva and went to church in uh, Geneva. And they had him arrested 
tried, convicted, and killed because of, among other things, he was criticizing John Calvin's theology. And there's, there's documented letters where Calvin's saying, you know, this guy needs to be killed. Well, how's that so different than the corrupt church era? I mean, they, they, so they killed Tyndall because he wanted to take their power away. What's the difference? And I, and I think what we have is this era where there's tremendous positive things that happen. I mean, the pilgrims, 1620 in this era, they came over to America. But you know what? The pilgrims didn't have a theology we would really be comfortable with. It's not that, well, they didn't do some wonderful things. I mean, look at the courage they had. And, and they came across because they didn't want their kids to be corrupted. But in Bradford's Plymouth Colony, he mentions this funny guy named William, Roger Williams that came through, had some odd notions. Well, Roger Williams is actually the founder of religious liberty as we know it in the United States. He founded Rhode Island and the, and the uh, Providence Plantations. And he, what he said was, you know, if we have to force people to become Christians, then we haven't really introduced them to the gospel. Why don't we try to live it in such a way that they want to copy us? Well, that sounds natural to our ears, doesn't it? And that's because Roger Williams' innovation is really what took root in America. So, this dead church had some really good things, but it was, I think, full of legalism. Maybe the grown-up seed from what started to take root in Ephesus. Okay, so I have run out of time. I thought I could get all this in in one session. I made it through five. So what I'm going to do is go ahead and stop here, and next, next week I'll start with the Philadelphia church and lay this in church and then go back and start going back through again was looking at the spiritual stuff. What do these rewards mean? What do these, um, what do these um, criticisms mean? And how are these personal to us? So we've got the underperforming church era. We've got the persecuted church era. We've got the syncretistic church era. We've got the corrupt church era. And the you got a reputation or a lie, but you're actually dead church era. The next two are going to be the faithful church, the church with no criticism, the, second, the only other no criticism church in addition to the persecuted church, and then our era, the Laodicean church. By the way, Revelation had a hard time getting into the New Testament because there was one church that really wanted to hold out that it didn't think it should. Can you guess which one it was? Laodicea, yeah. Okay, God, thank you for this amazing book, the opportunity to learn what it means to be a faithful witness, this instances in history that show us what these mistakes look like, and also the amazing remnant, these, these faith, this stream of faithful people that all through this era, even though maybe there's corruption in the church, there's also tremendous purity in the church as well with people that are resisting as we go through. And as next week we unpack this Laodicean church, we know, Lord, that we, can, we don't have to succumb to the Spirit in this age and we can be true and faithful to you. Lord, I pray that you'll give us uh, the kind of insight to be the sort of people that you praise all through these uh, era, these churches. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.